Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Silence of the Lambs, starring Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, Scott Glenn, and Ted Levine, based on The Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris and directed by Jonathan Demme. Welcome back to Bryce Smile Films. It's time for week two in this cask uh, inspired by the Batman. Maybe we just kind of call it like serial killers on the big screen cask. And coming to you right now from 1991, The Silence of the Lambs. This is another like big heavy hitter film that we've yet to discuss on this podcast right there kind of with Psycho and... You know, the Godfather that's awaiting its day one day, one day soon, hopefully. Um, but yeah, from 1991, this is kind of a big movie when it came out. Primarily, you know, we're smack dab in the middle of Academy Award season right now. And this one cleaned house when it when it when it was when it was up. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, 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 when we get into the show. But this is gonna be a fun conversation. We are completing the Ed Gein trilogy today because mm. we did Texas Chainsaw, we did Psycho. Yeah, you're right. We're wrapping it up today. <laughs> so to Ed Gein, to Ed Gein. <laughs> yeah. Um, but today we're having some more. Uh, this is Basil Hayden's toast. This is their uh, toasted variation of their original recipe. Uh, yeah, this one, this one's pretty good. I, you know, best described to you is it's just a little more darker, a little more toasty, probably more a little bit more charred barrel, right? Mm-hmm. You can't go wrong with Basil Hayden. Exactly. It's a good standby. And this one is like $42, $43. It's not a bad buy for, for the bottle. If you can get a bottle like that for under $60, mm-hmm. i am good. Yeah, me too. Like, and and then the ones you know, that's why I'm always blown away by Buffalo Trace is like $24, $25. That's a great bottle of, of bourbon. Yep. You know, when we've kind of gotten a little all out, it's been a while since we've done that, but yeah. I think we we did a Booker's one time that was like in the hundreds mm-hmm. and I wasn't impressed, you know? No, I know. Yeah. yeah. I was, it wasn't like, boy, that's why I'm afraid of Pappy Van Winkle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all the fluff and it'd be like, eh. So through all of it, do you have a top three bottles, like a top three bourbons that you would go, this is your hierarchy of favorite, second, third? Probably uh, Weller Antique, the red label. Yep. Uh, Bib and Tucker. Yep. I'm a Calumet Farms guy. They're mm-hmm. like, well, we've done a few bottles from them, uh, one of their like antique labels, and then just like an age 10 years. I think that one's my number one. I'm going to have to go with Old Forester, not the Prohibition one, but the other one that we did. Um, was that Bottled and Bond? Green one. I think the green labeled one. Yeah. Um, that was number one. I really liked that Blanton's that we had. Mm-hmm. That was number two. And then number three would be that red labeled um, Willers. That yeah. was fantastic. Yeah. And that one I haven't seen since. You know what I mean? Yeah. But a lot of green label. That, yeah. Yeah. I forgot about yeah, the Blantons. That, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. We still have to complete the bottles so they spell out Blantons. It's a lot of drinking. <laughs> it's a lot of drinking. But let's get right to it with our flight question. I guess taken from the six degrees of separation idea, we're going to dive pretty deep and hit three degrees of separation today. So this okay. is inspired by Batman to take us to seven. This is inspired post seven. Okay. So 
as this movie does have an interesting cop team up sort of, mm-hmm. um, although Lecter isn't exactly a cop, but there is a team up element in this that mm-hmm. you can't but deny. I think that's what makes the movie work. Yeah. A lot of ways. I'm going to put you in the position of picking any psychopath from film okay. that you would like to be paired with in order to bring Mr. John Doe from last week, our Kevin Spacey character from seven to justice and keep him from perpetuating the seven deadly sins, thus resulting in seven murders. Excellent. So you get any psychopath you want, Jesse, Okay. to be your running mate Hannibal Lecter style, but obviously not Lecter because that's the rules for the flight, right? You can't use the character from this week. Excellent. All right, how about it? I had two options. I'm going to go with the primary one because this one really jumped out at me first. Uh, I need someone that's kind of on John Doe's level. Uh whether that's psychosis or methodology of thinking. And this guy definitely has his own kind of morality tale of how he selects people that's very similar. So maybe that can unlock something to the location of where John Doe is. And I am going with uh, with John Kramer, better known as Jigsaw from the mm-hmm. Saw franchise. Good choice. Both kind of picking their people as kind of wastes of space, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of, you're taking up space on Earth, so now I'm going to put you through hell and... Jigsaw's a little bit different, though. He doesn't. It's kind of hard to call him a serial killer because his victims do all the self-harm on their own. Yeah, good point. He doesn't do any of the killing, but he does build and put them in these horrible contraptions. But it's a kind of a life lesson, and I kind of feel like that's what John Doe's doing, too, mm-hmm. trying to teach them, especially with pride, remember? You can call the cops and get at or get help, but you'll be disfigured the rest of your life. Yeah. Nope, Yeah, I'm not okay with that. Kill myself. Oof. So, yeah, John Kramer, Jigsaw. Let's see if we can bring John Doe to justice. You had another one. You were in, You said you had two possible. What's it? Or do you want to save it? Yeah, you go, and then I'll, I'll mention that one. Uh, can I do my secondary one first and then my big one? Yeah. I gave a lot of thought to this. I didn't think I'd end up thinking so much about the flight question as I put into it. Okay. But what I came to realize is I don't know if I want a running mate in this to bring John Doe to justice. That can outsmart him because I don't think you can. Yeah. Not that he's the smartest man on the planet, but there's a method to his madness that only he gets and only he understood. And even in the case of last week, Somerset has him figured out. Mm-hmm. It's the seven deadly sins, but it doesn't provide a happy ending, certainly, or prevent John Doe from basically carrying out the mission that he carries out. Now, they get close, right? They find his apartment and they have the shootout in the um, apartment complex. Mm-hmm. But Doe wins. So if the ultimate goal is to not let Doe win, I'm going to go something that's very different. Okay. I don't think we can outsmart him, so that's off the table. So I'm going to go with the fair of the two sexes on this, and I'm going to go with Miss Glenn Close, Alex Forrest from Fatal Attraction. That's pretty good. Here's why. Okay. If you are as ruthless as we find her to be, that is boiling a rabbit in your Mm ex-lover's house, that's the child's pet rabbit, there's a level of depravity in you Mm -hmm. that I think can at least match or present a challenge to John Doe. The question though for this, and this is why I didn't ultimately end up choosing her is, will he find enough traction aesthetically or sexually to where we can get the femme fatale piece in this to derail him? Yeah. And I almost kind of wondered too with Alex, like there's just a veil of, yeah, I might not, I might not trust her a little bit. So Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, that's my honorable mention. Let's hear your other one. 
yeah, this is from a film. I don't know if you've seen it, but I recommend you maybe check them out. So the killer, he goes by Joseph in the first film and Aaron in the second film. I'm talking about uh, Mark Duplass's character in a little found footage film called Creep and mm-hmm. Creep 2. Mm-hmm. And it's really remarkable. The first one's all about he's dying of cancer and he wants to kind of make a video diary for his wife that's you know, pregnant to kind of very my life with Michael Keaton. But as this videographer kind of says, this guy's kind of off his rocker and he's a serial killer. Uh, so it kind of goes through that, but he's sympathetic, but he's very calculating. And then in the second one, it's all about, I'm a serial killer. Are you? Can you help make a video for me kind of calc- uh, chronicling my my journey here? He's really good at it. And it's, you know, it's a different type of found footage for sure. But I like the people that are aware of how mad they are and in kind of control of it. Hmm. And that's kind of why Hannibal's so interesting too. Nice. Um, so I, you get a little bit of that from, but yeah, check them out. I think they're both on Netflix. They're like an hour and 15 minutes each. Creep and creep too. Creep and creep too, yeah. All right, I'll look into that. Yep. Two choices on this. I'm going to go with the original and not the latter. Mm. Both played by De Niro yep. and Mitchum. <laughs> yep. That's Mr. Max Cady. That'd be good. I don't think Brawny is going to do much to John Doe mm-hmm. because both Somerset and Mills are probably more Brawny than Mills is or than Doe is anyway. Maybe not Somerset. Mm-hmm. Here's why I choose him despite the limited effectiveness of his brawn. If that guy can doggedly pursue all of those that put him away like happens in Cape Fear and destroy every element counselor of -hmm. their lives in order to get back. Mm -hmm. Why can't I remember Gregory Peck's name, Gregory Peck's character's name in that? He's just counselor. (laughs) What the hell's his name? I'll look it up. Yeah. I want to say Robert, but that doesn't sound right. Brain fog, literally brain fog right now. (laughs) You know me and names. I'm usually so good I can just pick them like that. Right. Right. Yeah, right. But the reason I think that supersedes all that is even if I don't succeed, Sam Bowden, Sam, Councilor Bowden, yep. Sam Bowden. If I don't succeed, then I know Max will continue the pursuits until John Doe is brought to justice sure. because that dude is fueled by nothing other than raw emotional vengeance. Yeah. And that way, at least if I lose. That fucker's going to lose too. Exactly. So there you go. Max Katie's by any means necessary. I know you don't. Ca- I, yeah, I know you don't care too much for the the De Niro version compared to the other. I think they're both pretty good. Yeah. Um, but by any means necessary. I mean, Robert De Niro's willing to like. I'm going to hide underneath this car as you drive to Cape Fear. I mean, my God. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. Cape Fear. Just the concept in general made me decide I did not want to be a lawyer. I was like, really? There's no way. I was like, because you get a hold of one of these psychos, and the one if he just comes and just wrecks your life, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I was just like, yeah, maybe a different career path for myself. <laughs> mm. Great choice. Yeah. If you could find a third entry. It might be fun to do Night of the Hunter, Cape Fear, and some other Robert Mitchum vehicle. Oh, that'd be yeah. We'll, we'll have to kind of peruse his filmography because I know you don't like Night of the Hunter, or it's not as accol- or accolade as it should be. That movie gets a lot of praise. Mm-hmm. It's not as good as Cape Fear. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? I love Cape Fear. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sweet. Excellent. Good, good well, yeah, good choice. Let's see if we could get those guys to bring down John Doe. Take but, that, John Doe. We're coming for you, Buster. But I'd be curious to see how Hannibal Lecter would fare in that instance as well, especially mm. on a short timetable of one week. So let's dive right into our view breakdown of The Silence of the Lambs. Well scrubbed, hustling robe with a little taste. 
pediatricians giving you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor wire trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. What is your father to you? Is he a coal miner? Does he stink of a lamb? You know how quickly the boys found you, all those tedious, sticky fumblings in the back seats of cars, while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the end. see a lot, Doctor. But are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? What about it? Why don't you, why don't you look at yourself and write down what you see? Maybe you're afraid to. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. I can't wait to talk about that particular scene, but let's let's start at the beginning. So, The Silence of Lambs, Orion Pictures. We should do a top list of favorite production companies that don't exist anymore. Yeah, Corelco, exactly. Orion... Do you remember uh, Morgan Creek? Oh yeah, yeah. That where, where Morgan Creek's gone. Um, Andy Fraser, our friend Andy Fraser. Yeah, exactly. That'd be a fun lit Dark Castle. Ooh, yeah, remember Dark Castle? Mm-hmm. Oh, but I always just oh, I see Orion. I think of oh man, it's the Terminator, mm-hmm. RoboCop, and Silence of the Lambs. They made good films, man. They did, yeah. And they they, they kind of took a chance on kind of like New Line a little bit on some kind of out there ideas. Mm-hmm. Who wants to make a movie about a robot policeman? They did. <laughs> you know. I hadn't thought about whatever happened to Orion. I wonder if they were absorbed into a larger studio system and kind of allowed to conduct on their own business as a sort of side lot production company. Or? I've never done a deep dive, but I, it has to be maybe tied to MGM's bankruptcy, like just yeah. kind of just petered out. Yeah. But here we are. We're in Quantico, Virginia, the headquarters of the FBI or their training facility, but kind of their headquarters as well. And I want to get your take on kind of what's going on here at the at the beginning of, of the movie. So we introduced to Clary Starling, Jodie Foster. She's kind of running through this course, uh, really setting the tone. I, I can't think of anything I'd rather do less than run this course. Mm. It's damp, cold, a lot of running, a lot of like, and this looks early in the morning. Like, no, thank you. Yeah, hard pass. Uh, she looks Especially like she, what she's doing it into a sweatshirt and a turtleneck underneath. Yeah. Ugh. Not, there's not a lot of breathing in that fleece there, Clarice. It looks like she's doing it alone. So I want to know one mm-hmm. of your thoughts on two things. Uh, is this a training exercise and she's either blowing away the competition or has fall, fell so far back that she's by herself? Or is this just the morning routine and she's just running through it to start her day? It's a good question. Um, I hadn't thought about it till right now. My take on that was, and then I'll answer your question because okay. I'm going to give it back to you. Yeah. I think that the movie wants us to believe that in this class of excellence, she has the most promise. So there's plenty of great candidates as there would be in any FBI class, I mm-hmm. would assume. Yeah. And the movie doesn't really make any bones about this class of shit, except for Clarice. It's just a class. Mm-hmm. But she seems to be given either an impossible or a throwaway task or a task that is so uh, distasteful. Yeah. 
that the brass wants no part of it and can just wash their hands of it, thus probably getting rid of her if they need to. Mm -hmm. But I go back and forth because if the task becomes public knowledge Mm -hmm. and she's the face of this campaign, (laughs) yeah, this, you know, misuse of power and authority and justice, then as an academyite, they just get rid of her and they're getting rid of one of their best students. Mm-hmm. Um, despite all that, okay, so we go back and forth on where she is in the class, which I'm bleeding on the side of talent. Yeah. She does seem to be the only one on the course in the morning. So she is at least a, presenting an air of earnest or more diligence than the rest of her uh, peers might be in the same class. I'll, I'll go with diligence. Uh, okay. cause, cause what I kind of get is, this is just another regular morning. I'm starting my day out by like really throwing myself at it. So then I lean a little bit more towards uh goody two shoe a little bit, uh, a little bit of. Oh, like kiss ass a little bit, a little bit. Oh. Like I'm willing to put myself and then the film's going to, I'm just going in with this view now because the film's going to change that as we kind of learn more about her and her character. So if that's the portrayal of, well, look at this brown noser, a star student. She, she does it for fun in the morning. Um, then we should naturally not like her, right? I mean, that yeah. makes her kind of a little not likable. Sycophantic, right? And, and, and I'm okay with that. You know, this week I watched, uh, I hadn't seen it in years. Uh, it was a nice kind of rewatch was Election with Reese Witherspoon oh, yeah. and uh, Matthew Broderick. Right. And then Tracy Flick's like the epitome of just sycophantic. Mm-hmm. Hate that. I went to high school with a lot of Tracy Flick. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, naturally we shouldn't like that. But then as we start to break down Clarice's character, it gets it definitely starts to soften her up a little bit about wow, this girl kind of had a really shitty childhood and it's Hannibal that's able to break that down. So just kind of a view. I think we both could be right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, But yeah, tasked with this impossible task. So we got Jack Crawford uh, played by Scott Glenn. Glenn. Scott Glenn's a little uh, Claude Rains, isn't he? He is. The the if you can't get Clint Eastwood, you're getting Scott Glenn. (laughs) Oh man, well said. Spot on. (laughs) Right. I remember him from uh, Vertical Limit and uh, The Right Stuff. Urban uh, Cowboy. Urban Cowboy Stick in uh, the Daredevil uh, Netflix series. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He played Stick for a few seasons there. Yeah. If you can't get Eastwood. What is he? Isn't he um, captain in Backdraft? Like one of the police captain? Or Oh, no. Yeah. He's he's the guy that's like the bad guy. He's the guy that like sells them all under the table. Oh, is it him or Donald Sutherland? No, he's the arsonist. No, Donald Sutherland's like the, he's the Hannibal Lecter in that movie. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, he's the arsonist in that. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, like very Claude Rainsy. Mm-hmm. So all those roles you just mentioned are very Claude Rainsy. All Claude Rains, yeah, exactly. So we get in and he kind of just kind of lays it out. Here's Matter of fact, to draw the correlation even a little closer, Claude Rains is the same character that Scott Glenn plays in Notorious as he plays an urban cowboy. Yep, exactly. The thief of the girl that we're both pursuing. <laughs> How about that? I like Scott Glenn. I, I mean, too. it's just, I think he's still alive too. So good. So he's still making stuff. I think he's got to be in his eighties at this point. Yeah. But he gives Clarice this task. It was like, and he's got his uh, bulletin board of Bill skins his fit. So the, 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 uh, putting the groundwork that we got to catch this guy before he gets another. So Buffalo Bill is indeed a serial killer and not a, what they call a spree killer. A spree killer would kill like right away, like a mass shooting or one of those. So it seems like Bill does it like every once a month, every couple months. So they want to kind of catch him before he gets the next one. Do you get, okay, so let's talk about this too. Cause we're going to get two scenes back to back here. Uh, 
You think Jeff Crawford's flirting with Clarice a little bit? Yeah, that's that's a question that I think is answered with the same question I'm going to give you. Okay. Is Lecter flirting with Clarice a little bit? I think so. So then... And so is Chilton. Which gets to the larger... Right, because I agree with all of those. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do think he is. In a very professional, austere... This is the bureaucratic um, HR department of the FBI that's keeping me from actually officially exactly. asking you out on a date. Yeah. However, yes, all of the three paternal characters yeah. that Clarice runs into, whether mm, that's paternal, yeah, um, Chilton or um, Lecter yeah. or Crawford, yeah. Crawford, yeah, I think brings something to the table that is a a weaker version of what they're all trying to do, which is I see you as guidance and father. Meanwhile, we see her as object of affection, potential lover or object of affection. Yeah. But what does it say about that? I mean, so then we, we juxtapose that with Buffalo bill. So mm-hmm. if all those guys fail in their pursuits, but Buffalo bill is successful yeah. in acquiring women. That's kind of interesting, right? It kind of popped into my head when I was watching, I was like, look at all she's, Turning him down, that's inappropriate. She spurns Lecter. Lecter gets close, though, because he decides to use intellect to break her down. And the moment later, when she confesses the whole lamb story, it's a very euphoric moment for Lecter, like almost like a sexual release. Once Mm -hmm. he gets the full confession, it was like, this is what I wanted. You know what I mean? When, yes, I do know what you mean. That's really Mm -hmm. aptly put. Yeah. Buffalo Bill is the one that probably gets the closest to, well, for sure, doing her real harm. Mm -hmm. Is it because she is disarmed by him and she's not a big girl and she doesn't see a predatory state that the other men in her periphery might present themselves as? Yeah, I think so. So her dander's up with Lecter and Crawford and Chilton because she kind of, and we both pick it up too, so Mm -hmm. it's certainly in the film. Yeah that they are pursuing her for something more than social workplace camaraderie yeah, or labor. Yeah. Because something outside the walls of the workplace. Mm-hmm. Maybe the disarming element of Buffalo Bill is I'm not a size 14 and he's really not into women anyway. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I don't exactly know how to defend myself, but I would argue mm-hmm. She's pretty effective at defending herself from him also. Sure, yeah. Let me ask you a question to the larger. If we're sort of objectifying Clarice Starling in this film, I, for one, would probably not choose Jodie Foster to play that role. Nothing against Jodie Foster. She's a fantastic actress. Mm -hmm. I just think in 1991, there were a lot of choices on the table that could be the bombshell, if you want, in the FBI department. I like that they didn't. Don't get me wrong. She's amazing in this role and yeah. kills it. What do you think about this kind of general attraction that these men seem to find? Even the two weirdos that are like the bug museum guys. The are you guys trying to hit? Are you flirty? Well, of course. <laughs> so like all of these men are after her. Do you? And What the, do you think about that? I think personally, because Jodie Foster's a lesbian, in real life. And Which, I think, by the way, to her in that amazing speech that she gave about it, like, respect my boundaries. Yeah. A little and bit more that's needed all around, by the way. 
between her real life and then I think within the film, uh, I think she's lesbian in the film too because there's kind of some subtext there between her, her and her, her friend and her friend. So maybe it's not yeah. explicitly said, but yeah. their pursuits might be for not. You know what I mean? It's the spurned advances, the endless pursuit. But then here's Hannibal who's able to get what he wants. You know what I mean? It's all this sexual gratification at the end of the day. Well, do you want... Yeah, yes. Yeah. Do you want a, a Pfeiffer or... No, well, let me tell you. Yeah, so it was down, three people uh, okay. were in consideration too, but I think Jody was like at the top of the list. Michelle Pfeiffer was in consideration. It would have been, I think, pretty incredible yeah. as this character. Meg Ryan, eh, not really. No way. Uh, and... Jody Foster. <laughs> no, there was, a, there, was, there was one more. Oh. Laura Dern. Yeah, no way. That's Michelle Pfeiffer's role by a mile. That could have been cool. Uh, but yeah, it's just, uh, you know. God, Laura Dern right off a of wild at heart. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe. Yeah. So yeah, I, I could see Michelle Pfeiffer. But yeah, that, I don't think that takes any, anything away from Foster and what she does with this character. And anything, it, it maybe works a little bit better just because, yeah, it's just, they're all into her, but we we know her and we just know, yeah, she's like, I don't, I don't have time for this. That's inappropriate. Uh, but I'd, I'd like to see maybe yeah in my blockbuster in heaven I could see that version of Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> yeah, me too. You brought up something with her her friend. Mm-hmm. The I don't, I don't know what her friend's name is in that. Yeah. But when she gets her um, graduation certificate from completing her FBI class with probably the most difficult task that anyone's ever solved at the FBI in that that division at the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah. She's sitting in the crowd almost like a husband or a wife would be cheering on. Mm-hmm their their partner yeah i picked up on that too Mm -hmm. if that's the case and and maybe it's just because we're looking at this through glasses rose-colored lesbian glasses and we know better now so maybe that's what you and i are both just reading into it but uh, maybe not also maybe not no yeah (laughs) there is certainly a thread in this film now that is all of these people in this film are after her as an object of affection. Mm-hmm. I mean, shit, even Miggs, three minutes oh. into the film, which, in that disgusting <laughs> yeah, scene when she sees Lecter and he throws yeah. his you know, sp- yeah. cum all over yeah. her. <laughs> yeah. Fucker. Gross, huh? Um, I want to talk about that moment just a little bit, but yeah, you're right, even him. So if, let's finish this thought and then we'll go to that because I want to do that too. Okay. Does that pursuit of her in that manner enhance the film does it make it more frustrating to you does it make it um does it round it out with the more subtext what do you think about all this i think it might enhance it a little bit because as horrifying as a task that's at hand those are more like things she has to kind of deal with you know what i mean just kind of everyone just kind of looking at her and whether it's a sexual attraction or just like why are you here i mean that's the other reason why i think clarice was running that course at the beginning is like, this is like, she's out to prove herself and it all stems back to like these traumas as a, as a child. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think she's, she's, she's pr- going to run more than two miles carrying that heavy lamb. If she ever gets the chance again, and this is how she trains for it. Right. Sure. It's, exactly. So I think this is a moment for her. And I think when she gets it, she's like, I can't screw this up. I can't let come in my face, <laughs> ruin this opportunity for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. I do know what you mean. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, I didn't even really given this much thought until this, dive right now does any of that pursuit of clarice play out to any 
finality or significance in the film. I mean, it makes well, it, it makes, does with Lecter uh, in their kind of final scene there in the museum, and then I think it does with with Bill in the the kind of final confrontation. I mean, Crawford kind of disappears from the movie, and so does so does Chilton, but. With them two, for sure, those the pursuits. And the way we look at pursuit, it's pursuit with a different objective at that point. If you, okay, if you apply the way that Crawford and Lecter finish their relationships with Clarice at the end, I would argue they are both in a similar position. Mm-hmm. They both basically decide, we're going to leave you alone now. Yeah, yeah. Because the world's just better that you're in it. And maybe Crawford's for the purposes of the justice that the FBI is going to perpetrate on, I mean, um, adjudicate, I mean, um, take advantage of, I mean, just uh, <laughs> use, uh, ooh, I, don't know, I don't even know what verb to use in this because I hate the FBI, yeah. but is going to um, spill yeah. on society versus Lecter for just the common belief that the earth needs more interesting people because it's got plenty of jerks. Mm-hmm. One thing I think does remain consistent in the relationships that we know with Clarice and males, if in even her semi-adopted two-month stepdad or foster father at the, mm-hmm. the farm, yeah. she seems to be willing to walk away from all of them because none of them are able or willing to provide her with whatever it is she's missing. Mm-hmm. And she mostly seems okay with it because I think she spent so long doing it by herself. Yeah. An orphan at 10, a runaway mm-hmm. and then raised in a foster care system or until oh, she that's was awful. 18. That's terrible. Despite that though. And this is, I think the, the traction that foster gets in this performance. Yeah. She's still able to play Clarice, not as <clears throat> jaded, but as intellectual ingenue. She's there very smart. Well said, but she is very, very virginal. I don't mean sexually. I just mean she is very, very pink. Mm-hmm. There's no jade to her. Yeah. Very much an ingenue. And you can see that in those moments when she's talking to Lecter and she's trying to get him to help her mm-hmm. down the path to discover who Buffalo Bill is. Yeah. P- begging, pleading. There's an innocence in that. And that to me is all in Foster's performance. So as much as we said, Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm-hmm. I do think Foster slays this role. One one more just little anecdote, and then we'll get to that first scene between the two of them. God, we're not even there yet. This is headed for a four-hour-long podcast. <laughs> hey, as long as it takes. this is. I, I, it was a question I had watching, and I was like, this would make a great conversation because it's all about sexual pursuits, you know what I mean? Yeah. Even Buffalo Bill to an extent. Yes. When he wears his skin suit, it's about sex. Right. I wish they would have gotten to this a little bit more, but in... So this is the second book in this series, the first one being Red Dragon. And in Red Dragon... Oof, great the, film. Yeah. <laughs> Manhunter. I'm telling you, Manhunter's great. Uh, the Golden Boy, the FBI Golden Boy in Red Dragon Manhunter is Will Graham. I mean, they bring him out of retirement, and that's the guy that arrested Lecter, brought him to justice, and wounded him severely, Uh Lecter like almost filleted him. So he has the trauma from dealing with him, but they need, Will, we need you to come help us. Kind of, it's the same movie as this. Help us bring this other guy to justice. And it's Crawford's golden boy. So I wish they would have kind of got into, my guy retired, he went off into the sunset. I'm looking for a new golden boy, Mm. golden girl. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe it's you, Clarice. And if there was a little bit more testing of the elements, like he's almost putting her through... A test. And it kind of, right? I mean, even when she's interrogating, uh, observing the body later, I mean, that's like a test, right? Yeah. This first sequence, uh, did you also notice this too, uh, with how they shoot dialogue sequences in this movie? 
it's like a close-up face and they look directly into the camera oh, yeah. so it almost kind of becomes like it's almost like we're being analyzed right yeah. when lecter's talking to us it's almost like i'm going to try to break the audience down as well it's a very intimate way to shoot dialogue scenes and not a lot of films do it mm-hmm. and that's always stuck out to me yeah usually it's profile to profile with both over characters the, interacting shoulder, yeah. yeah but it's it's like we're look i'm looking at you right now is how we're shooting these scenes yeah very interesting when she walks around the oh she's walking down the hallway and she meets all these guys and Migs and it was Migs say I can smell your mm-hmm. <laughs> don't say that word. Good God, I mean, <laughs> we can curse on this podcast, but you can't say that word. I, I won't. I, I won't. I won't say it. But brutal. I mean, this this film is just willing to go past the boundaries. Yeah. And when she walks around the corner, he's just standing there, just like waiting for her <sighs> presence. You know what I mean? Vampiric. Uh, he's pale because he hasn't seen the sun in God knows when years, decades. And he's ready. He's ready for her. He's just like, those Crawford sending me another young, young <laughs> uh, candidate for me to, to dissect. And she kind of gives it to him pretty good here. I mean, and you can kind of see what I like about Clarissa's dialogue and her delivery is that it's almost like the textbook answer of how someone would address a psycho. Mm-hmm. She's going back through all her schooling, laying, I need to say this, I need to say that. And with Lecter, you can't really do that. I mean, he's intellectually superior to everyone in the film. Uh, and that audio clip I played when he, he breaks her down to it. He, he's like, was your father, was he a coal miner? He's like all those nights in behind in, in, in the backs of cars, all those sticky nights in the backs of cars. You wished for a better life somewhere at the FBI figures her out, right? Your cheap shoes and that accent you've tried to hide your whole life. And it kind of, I think jars her a bit. And then she kind of like, you can analyze me, but I want to see you do that for this doctor. And, that's when he says, a census taker once tried to test me and I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. That's a warning, right? That's, I think, a warning to Clarice of, if you try and cross the line with me, like, I'm going to get you. Because she gives it back to him after he goes through the sticky nights in the back seat in your nice bag and your cheap shoes. Mm-hmm. She turns it around on him and says, can you use that sharp intellect to do it to yourself? Like, you are so very clear and yeah. astute. What's the mirror look like, buddy? That's my slang version of saying the same thing that she does and it pisses him off you yeah. can tell mm-hmm. he basically i think hands her back the paperwork at that point and says you do not yeah want to get on the wrong side of this mm-hmm. train mm-hmm. and it's a little terrifying now that it's the, it's it, the it, famous it, line from the film right and it's shocking but it's it eating someone's liver with some fava beans and a nice chianti which i wonder is that a, his west virginia taunting of the way you're supposed to say chianti could be yeah because it's Clearly mispronounced on purpose. It also says a lot about Lecter, too, and it's something that the NBC show went a lot into, which was how cultural significant he was. Like, Mm -hmm. he was very, uh, like, high society, was into the culinary arts. Mm. So he's intellectual, he's a man of high society, and he's a serial killer. I mean, like, this is someone you don't want to mess with. You're the serial killer guy. Okay. Which of the ones in all of your true crime studies is he mo- like? Which guy is that version of him? The high society, well-to-do. Gosh, I don't know. I don't. Is know. Is there a millionaire boys club serial killer guy? I'm sure there is. I can't. Not not any of like the big names that we know of, like Bundy or Gacy or any of these guys. They, I don't think Lecter was really derived from any of them. Yeah. Um, which kind of makes him a little unique too, you know yeah, what I mean? Sure. Uh, he, we're not getting the Ed Gein components from him; it's with Bill. But she leaves this interview, and then yeah, just gets mm-hmm. 
Yeah. This blasted. I, I've never seen that in a movie before or since. Like, Still, no. How shocking was that? You're just sitting in the theater in 91 and it's just like, it's the line mix is like, I bit my wrist. <laughs> how, how does this not get an NC-17? How? I know that's that? just un, unheard of. And Which would have been the kiss of death. This would have midnight cowboyed this movie. I can't think of anything more disrespectful too. Like you mm-hmm. don't want someone's a strange psychos like sperm on your face. If that guy has HIV, you don't know. Right. And then he, so Lecter's thing is like, <laughs> what an act so detestful. I'm going to help you out, but I'm going to put you on a little test first. Kind of, kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Oh my God. That's so traumatic. Like I would have quit right there. Like, I'm sorry, FBI. This was great, but I don't need that in my life. <laughs> well, this movie from Clarice's point of view is a series of tests mm-hmm. from the Scott Glenn at the moratorium of the girl that they find that's already been um, skinned to Lecter and his constant testing to see if Clarice is worthy to the general state of the FBI and these physical tests that you have to endure. And she seems to be able to pass all of them. Um, But this movie is just one test after another, whether it's mental, physical, social, or emotional on Clarice. Um, They're all there. Like the men test her Mm -hmm. physically, the men test her emotionally. Um, And you get, I, I just think when I go to, Female heroines, I guess that's what makes a heroine. Mm-hmm. There are two that comes to mind. It's Frances McDormand in Fargo and Jodie Foster in this film. And then everybody else, and that includes Wonder Woman and Black Widow, and everybody else is a cl- distant third. Put, those I, are put, one and two. I put Ripley up there too. Okay, I forgot Ripley, my bad. So those three. Yeah. And everybody else is just playing for fourth place. Yeah. But I think part of at the end of the day, I think they wrote an interesting character. I mean, I can't, when we get into her, yeah. her background and this horrific story, uh, it really starts to shape why she is the way she is. So that makes me almost want to lean into Goody Tusha, you know what I mean? Because then there's an arc, an even better arc than yeah. she already has. Like mm-hmm. we go from not liking her to like, I'm kind of championing, I want you to get this guy now. Mm-hmm. So the information he gives her leads her to this storage facility where she finds this, you know, uh, Head. Head, and mannequin a, head, head. Head, head. head in a jar. No, it's a real head. No, I know, but ma- mannequins and then a head. Oh, yeah, yeah. This head and this, like, uh, jalopy. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I like how unrefined she is. You know, when we talked about last week with, uh, or oh, with the Batman, how he kind of flubs up a little bit and is kind of unrefined. I mean, she gives herself tetanus just getting into the garage here. I mean, she's not really smooth. And especially in the final sequence, like, She's very careful to go about uh, Buffalo Bill's lair. Doesn't want to make a mistake. Because then we show her in the training montage later, and she didn't check the corner and got would have gotten blown away. So she's still learning, uh, and this is, this is quite the test for her. But we learned that this is going to be in relation to bu- uh, Buffalo Bill, that he's tied to her, uh, tied to, to that, um, these former patients of Lecter. And he's like, oh, I agreed to profile for you, but I, w- I want a little quid per quo. And they have that moment later. But let's talk about Buffalo Bill real quick, played by Ted Levine. Levine. <clears throat> he's always kind of been like the dark horse of this film for me. Like all the accolades went to the other actors, justfully so. But he kind of steals the movie a little bit. I mean, he's so precisely scary uh is i guess the best way to to put it i'll I'll play this little clip here this is this is horror this is like a horror film can i help you with that 
you? Sure. Thank you. That's all right. You look kind of handicapped. Yeah. I got it this far. I just can't get it up in the truck. So, yeah, let's grab this. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's set it down. That's good. Uh, get in the truck, and I want to push it all the way up. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, push it all the way back. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, that's great. Okay. Hey, say, are you about a size 14? Sorry. This is what Ted Bundy used to do. Ted Bundy would walk around like the West Coast and his he had like a VW bug and would walk around with a fake cast on and like would lure women to help him get stuff into his car because he couldn't do it. And once they did, that was it. So mm-hmm. that moment when she gets in the the van, you're just like, no, like bad move. Not every, we talk about superior and anterior positions a lot. You don't want to be inside the lair as he's going to get back in there with you. There's no way you're getting out. Right. God. Yeah. But Buffalo Bill's smart, isn't he? I mean, mm-hmm. being able to lure through sympathy, through disability to get what he needs, which is skin. Mm. Brutal. Uh, and then, then you get to, to to his lair there, which is... I like that they, they don't show the exterior of the house until the very end, but it looks like, man, where are we? Like in a in a mine shaft in hell? Like what what is this? This cavern? And it's it's pretty effective. It's, it's exactly what you'd expect his place to look like, right? When you mm-hmm. talk about settings and locations, like John Doe's apartment looks like how it should. I think the mm-hmm. same about Buffalo Bill's Shantate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> now they find a, they find a, a victim and they go and investigate. And this is kind of, you know, Clarice, uh, kind of, you know, going through the whole investigative process. What do you think of this, this kind of first scene there? And then we got the, the kind of the trip to the bug guys and we're trying to figure out what the moth is and the significance of all that. But that was a pretty interesting moment. You know, well, obviously we get a little bit more into her background when she opens up the, sliding doors at the mortuary and she's has this we think we're seeing the funeral of the woman how crazy is that like we're gonna have a funeral we're gonna have a wake but then we're gonna go put her on the slab because we need to do an autopsy god yeah but it's her dad in the in the casket and then we kind of learned something happened in between there and there's a moment tied to all this so now when this woman's on the slab there's everyone's vixing up or mentholing up so they don't smell how horrid it smells but there's almost like a moment of this is the first dead body in the field I think she's seen. And she almost has to like, almost like an athlete, like, okay, now I'm going in, going into the huddle, break. You know what I mean? And now I'm going to go do my job. What do you kind of think of that? I mean, that's this kind of a big moment for her too. Another test, right? Yeah. And uh, I don't think she's really killing this one to start. The other guys take that um, menthol or whatever it is and put it on their nose. Don't even think twice about it. She, on the other hand, turns her back, doesn't want them to see her put it on. Mm-hmm. And it struck me with all of the pursuits that these men are engaged in with her. Is she doing that because she's afraid she's going to look silly when she turns around or puts that on? Um, and they'll think less of her, or think less of her aesthetic yeah. appearance? Yeah. Or is it just she's so raw and so unknown to what's about to happen that she has given herself the little Newt Rockney when one for the Gipper mm-hmm. 
pep rally speech. Yeah. Either one work. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's an interesting moment that those two guys just kind of without even thinking twice, bam, bam, put it on. They toss it around like it's he's got it on him. That's how how common this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crawford's carrying it on his person. Yeah. So this is something they've done a time or two. He knows exactly what the routine is. What this looks like. But she, on the other hand, I don't want you guys to see me put this on, which mm-hmm. is so weird because they yeah. they don't care. Yeah. Why does she? Because I, I mean, she wants to prove I can do this. And if I'm going to wince or make a face mm. when I turn around, like I fail this test. Yeah. I can't do that. I mm-hmm. need to be ready. Yeah. So that's what it's like. I almost kind of imagine her back there going like, if she was lose, listening to like lose yourself by Eminem, like she'd be like, get into go. the zone. Okay. Self, come on. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. And then boom, now I can do it. And then she kind of does a pretty good job at kind of analyzing this body. And then she notices the, there's an obstruction in the, in the mouth cavity, yeah. which they, they haven't really kind of seen before. Uh, so what is that? It looks like a like a pot or something. And then she goes to the bug guys. That scene's always very comical to me. That guy, this guy with his lazy eye. We want to go get some cheeseburgers. <laughs> and beer. Hey, there you go. The lone gunman to Scully in the X-Files, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and they find out this is a death, death, death head's moth. So this is a good clue. I mean... Last week, we could have used a, a, a really good clue like this. This is Somerset, you know, uh, going in the gray to find the the flagged library book. Mm-hmm. So this is a rare moth. If we can find out how these are getting to the States, we might be able to kind of nab our guy. Yeah. So we, we have something. But then it's it's also a calling card, too. So what I, what I guess I've never recollected this with this film. I've seen it quite a few times. Bill knows that they're looking for him. Mm-hmm. So he's leaving calling cards, almost taunting the police or and the authorities of, I'm going to do it again. And these are my calling cards. I mean, he, he leaves the clippings of the clothes outside the window uh, when he abducted Catherine. And then it's this moth pot in, in the thing. Um, but then I, th- I think Hannibal, he, uh, he, he breaks it down kind of like, what does this mean? Why a moth? What else? She had an object deliberately inserted into her throat. Now, that hasn't been made public yet. We don't know what it means. Was it a butterfly? Yes, a moth. Just like the one we found in Benjamin Raspail's head an hour ago. Why does he place them there, Doctor? The significance of the moth has changed. Caterpillar into chrysalis. Our pupa, and from thence into beauty. Our belly wants to change too. There's no correlation in the literature between transsexualism and violence. Transsexuals are very passive. Clever girl. You're so close to the way you're going to catch him. Do you realize that? No. Tell me why. What do you think of Anthony Hopkins, just his delivery of his dialogue? I mean, last week with Morgan Freeman, we talked about a late bloomer and kind of when he kind of got big with Lori and Shawshank and seven same thing with Hopkins. I mean, he's in his fifties at this point and this is kind of his like claim to fame was this film. Yeah. It's also the movie that's going to ruin him too. Also. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's a a Pacino effect with Anthony Hopkins, Mm. I believe. And that's, you can only emote yourself so much before you become a character of yourself. Sure. Take whatever role you want for Pacino and it, whether that's Dog Day or Serpico, or even if you want to go a little bit later and do um, um, Scent of a Woman. Yeah, thank you. 
you get so good at playing a part in a film that I think in some ways it seeps into everything that you do. Sure. As strange as this sounds, I see versions of Hannibal Lecter in Odin, mm. in all of the Thor films, mm. also in the Wolfman. Oh, yeah. Whether it's his pantameter. Talbot's father. <laughs> yeah, Sir John Talbot. Mm-hmm. The the way he speaks in the delivery is another version of Hannibal Lecter. What's the problem now with Hopkins is he drinks like a fish. <laughs> Apparently he's really difficult to work with on set from everything that I've read. He's like impossible to work with and he's drunk most of the time. And I don't mean yeah. like Robert Shaw drunk. I mean like hammered Ever and like drunk. angry hammered drunk. Yeah. I think Shaw was a bad drunk too, but yeah. supposedly Hopkins is, is no, he's no there. picnic. He's there too. I'm not saying that Pacino drinks, but you get so caught up in, or you get so tired or exhausted with the profession that you just go to the same thing and it ends up being, that all of the time. Well, doesn't it get easy then? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, yeah, and you, you just, yeah, you could show up on a set and just be like, I know what I need to do and I'll, I'll do it. But he's he, great in this. I was going to say here in 91 where we haven't seen that before. Sure. Like this is, I think pretty remarkable. And he does so much with his eyes and they're good to do close-ups of them. Like unblinking, like just kind of like this, these death stares, the, his delivery of, of these lines, it's, it's so calculated and, Brian Cox played him in Manhunter, and he was pretty good in that. But, you know, Hopkins is doing something else altogether, and he's barely in this movie. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, it's like yeah. 13 or 14 minutes, I think, right? Yeah. If you take this performance by Hopkins and compare it to, let's say, something a little bit later, like let's say maybe Meet Joe Black. Hmm. It's the same character. Yeah. Superior and haughty and intellectual. And then if you take that and you put it on a bunch of testosterone, you get Odin. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, he's awesome in this. Like that being said, like that's a, a stupid criticism in that he's just playing himself at this point because he's old now. That happens with a lot of actors, though. I mean, even like you see the like the Pacino, like the even like, De Niro to a certain extent too. Even like the Jim Carrey of it all too, oh, especially yeah. in his heyday. I mean, uh, Ace Ventura and Stanley Ipkiss from The Mask are kind of one notch away from being that character. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you're good at it, I mean you're you're good at it for a reason. So but. he's steely and he's cold and he he's written really well too. We have to give a shout out to Ted Talley. Yeah, yeah. He has written really. They all are, but mm-hmm. he has written superbly well. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to write that smart. What is it about it though that like sticks out to you? Is it just the intellectual superiority of it all? Yeah, and the fact that no matter what the circumstance is, he's always still in control. Even mm. when the chips are down, he's still always in a superior position. You want me to play another one of those? Yeah. Tell me, Senator. Mm. Did you nurse Catherine yourself? <laughs> what? Did you breastfeed her? Now, wait a minute. Yes, I did. Toughened your nipples, didn't it? Oh, son of a bitch. Amputate a man's leg and he can still feel it tickling. Tell me, Mom, when your little girl is on the slab, where will it tickle you? You're gone. Take this thing back to Baltimore. Five for ten, strongly built, about 180 pounds. Hair blonde, eyes pale blue. He'd be about 35 now. He said he lived in Philadelphia, but may have lied. That's all I can remember, Mom. But if I think of any more, I will let you know. Oh, and Senator, just one more thing. Love your suit. 
You're absolutely right. In a moment where Hannibal is confined, locked up, mask on, the classic Hannibal mask. I'm going to be that for Halloween one of these years, by the way. Just strapped to a dolly all night and just feed drinks through me through a straw. Authorities, senator, all this power around him, and he's has the superior position in the room the entire time. Remarkable, right? I mean... Where does it tickle you? Who has the balls to say that? Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, gosh, that scene gives me the heebie-jeebies. And uh, it's just, yeah, this guy's smart, but, like, if he gets out, it's bad news, man. I mm-hmm. mean, if you crossed him, he's coming for you, mm-hmm. Chilton. <laughs> Chilton. Uh, but you know, let's talk about Chilton just real quick. I mean, <clears throat> he reminds this is a great asshole performance in the vein of, like, Dick Thorne, Richard uh, Atherton in uh, Ghostbusters or Die Hard, right? Yeah. The guy that's in it for monetary gain. So he kind of undercuts the FBI and is like, well, Hannibal did this confession and now we're going to go catch Buffalo Bill. So he's kind of in it for the fame and fortune. Mm-hmm. And man, him and Hannibal have been going at it for God knows how many years, right? The intellectual battles that these two are, are playing to prove each other wrong, uh, I think is, is, is pretty unique here, but... Kind of what we got is, so the the woman that Bill abducted is a senator's daughter. They're making all these pleas on the news and stuff to try to find a way to get her back. Meanwhile, Buffalo Bill is making sure this is, this is disgusting. He places the lotion in the basket. I want to see my mommy. Please, no. I want to see my Put the lotion in the basket. Uh, Buffalo Bill is making sure that his victims are nice and lubricated. That way he has more skin to cut when it's time for the cutting. What? (laughs) No dry skin for Buffalo Bill, right? Good God. Uh, That's that's horrific. Yeah. Can you think of like if you... To be in the in Catherine's position in the pit, and then you see all the bloody fingernails and the women that have tried to get out and couldn't. What would go through your head at that point, knowing like there's no way to get out of this, right? Right. Like I just wait and I suffer and I psychologically just have to be okay with it. Torture. Brutal. That's torture on a a brutal level. As he mocks her. Bill's a monster. Like this is, this is something horrific, and it, Hannibal's a monster too. You brought up a point earlier. I think that's really uh, clear in this. Ted Levine's performance is fantastic. It puts the lotion on its skin, or it gets the hose again. He is so off his rocker, mm-hmm. and the moments that because I bet you his screen time is probably comparable to Lecter's probably, screen time. yeah. But, you know, you said he steals the film. When he's in there in Buffalo Bill mode, not in Bob Conrad or whatever name he gives when they answer the door or when she when mm-hmm. he answers the door for her. Yeah. I, know, I forget what name he gives her. What a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when he's in Buffalo Bill mode, he is horrifying. Yeah. Even the part when he's putting the lipstick on and not fuck me. Mm-hmm. He is a truly menacing Yeah. Monster. The question I think is who's more terrifying, Lecter or Buffalo Bill? Gosh. 
much. It's Lecter, but I don't think it's by a lot. I don't know. It's pretty close. They're uh, terrifying. I mean, you know, Bill's whole thing, I mean, he's going through a transition. I mean, he does want to be feminine, be be a woman. But to disconnect the mental illness that's afflicted Bill, that's taken that, well, in order for me to be satisfied, I need to slice up women and make skin suits. And then now I feel that's what I need to wear to be, have that transition. That's where it goes into psycho, uh, psychopath territory, whereas someone could go through that transition and it's, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's the Ed Gein part. The skin suits, I mean, gosh, go read a thing about what they found in Gein's house, nipple belts, and really horrifying stuff. Mm -hmm. But then it's the sex thing, right? For Buffalo Bill, I mean, once he's in that mirror scene when he lipsticks up and he's dancing and doing his thing, like, that's why he's doing it, right? Now I feel complete, but this is gratifying for me. Like, this is how I, I get off. Man, it's messed up people. I yeah. mean, it's it's just... And then it's the same with Hannibal, too. So Clarice promised Hannibal that we were... Uh, I'm going to get you uh, a room with the view uh, if you help us out. And it was just kind of just fluff. Because his room with the view now is this museum, this cage. And they're just kind of watching him here while they're waiting to transport him back to Baltimore. And she goes to him one more time. And th I th this is a pretty remarkable sequence here. Talk about the dialogue in the screenplay. But this is where Hannibal's going to get what he wants, right? I mean, he, Hannibal gets some sort of gratification on knowing the makeup and the markup of what makes a person to their core. And he knows there's something about Clarice that this is a show. You coming to me with your cheap shoes and that, this is not who you really are. Mm -hmm. I want to know who you really are. And then I'll give you the answers you seek. Because he already knows. He knows all the answers. And it's this story that she tells of after my father died, I ended up with this foster family, and they had a little small ranch farm. And I'll play the little the little clip here. But this is, this is, this is pretty horrifying in its own right, too. I took one lamb, and I ran away as fast as I could. Where were you going, Clary? I don't know. I didn't have any food, any water, and it was very cold. Very cold. I thought, I thought if I could save just one, but he was so heavy, was so heavy. Mm. I didn't get more than a few miles when the sheriff's car picked me up. Rancher was so angry, he sent me to live at the Lutheran Orphanage and Postman. I never saw a ranch again. What became of your lamb, Clarice? I killed him. You still wake up sometimes, don't you? You wake up in the dark and hear the screaming of the lambs. Yes. And you think if you save poor Catherine, you could make them stop, don't you? You think if Catherine lives, you won't wake up in the dark ever again to that awful screaming of the lamb. It's that moment, too, when I notice he kind of, like, I think he maybe had a tear in his eye welling up, but it was almost like this, like, uh, like kind of this euphoric moment of I got what I wanted, you know what I mean? Like, I, I got the 
you to dig deep and give me broke her down the story I needed exactly. And then he gives her the information there at the end uh, in, in the files, but it's pretty horrific, right? I try to think, and I I kind of like that Demi doesn't decide to like show us that sequence because in my head I'm trying to wonder, God, what is that? Like, what does that screaming sound like to a 10-year-old? Horrific. I walked into a a, a family Matanza one time, and it was quite nightmarish. (laughs) With the pig? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But this, this is something, something all all together. Uh, And then, and then it leads. Wait, hold on. You watch the slot. What happened? Yeah, there? I walked in because it's it's all part of the. You, you slaughter it and then you cook it and then you have a big gathering together. I like walked in <laughs> the killing and it was very traumatic. Oh my god! How yeah. old were you? Like six or seven. Damn. I know. Yeah. So I'm okay. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay. That would what a brutal thing. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of I kind of see this this moment too, and especially as alone as she is right now, no parental figures, moms. I guess out of the picture as well at this point. Yeah. And then she ends up at an orphanage for the next eight years of her life. Mm-hmm. Feel bad for her. Yeah. Uh, and so what happens to Clarice now if Catherine's killed? Catherine represents, I think, a different part of the cattle going to slaughter, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's going to be worse. It's going to be way worse than it was before. So she needs to see this through to the end and win. The uh, euphoric release that Lecter gives when he gets Clarice's full backstory, mm-hmm. I think is worth delving into for, for his character pursuits and why he doesn't choose to go after her at the end. Because she's certainly going to go after him. Mm-hmm. He's not going to just roam the streets killing people aimlessly. Sure. Yeah. Why is it then that he doesn't see her as a direct threat and he gives her that promise at the end, like, I'm not coming after you, don't have to worry about me, you'll never see me again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is it because... She's vulnerable enough to give that peace to him mm-hmm. who, even in his own mind, he knows is is not a, a healthy or safe or just individual compared to Chilton or Crawford or the guy's um, head that was in the car, um, his old patient that knew Buffalo Bill. If you believe that story that he tells her like or that they had a relationship via the same therapist, which was him. Yeah. And he calls him a garden variety manic depressive. Yeah. It's just so dismissive. Mm-hmm. Is it he's dismissive of them, particularly that serial killer? Um, what's that guy's name? The head, the guy's name that's got the head in the in the uh, storage facility that she finds. Not Moffat. It's uh, something like that. Yeah. Jack. Um, yeah, terrible podcasting right here. No, I, got, I got it right here. Just give me a second. The the point I'm making is, if he doesn't see her as a threat, then he's mistaken because she is a threat. But does he see her as a nice threat or an interesting threat as opposed to just garden variety or run-of-the-mill threat? Because there's no reason why he shouldn't go after her except for this. Yeah. She gives him this very vulnerable backstory piece of her her upbringing, mm-hmm. and it tugs at his heartstrings enough that also does something else that's really important in the writing world for villains or in the uh, rounding the three dimensionality of villains. Mm-hmm. It humanizes him, if ever so briefly. Yeah, 
And that is tough to do because this man is anything but human. After we've seen the terrible things that he's perpetrated, whether it be visually that crucifixion scene of the cop on the outside of the museum. Oh, my God. <laughs> or whatever it might be. Um, but this uh, <clears throat> We humanize him. And I've always wondered that, though. Clarice somehow, in his world, is a non-threat or a non-worthwhile meal. And that, to me, is quite puzzling because... I don't think he wants to go back into a cage. No. But eventually that's where she's going to put him if she wins. Yeah. Is he superior to her and he knows she'll never catch him and so he doesn't view her as a real threat? I think that, but in a weird kind of context, I think maybe he views her as a friend now. Kind of. An ally. Weird. And it's different from the last film or book uh, where Will Graham does not let Lecter get into his head because he knows what he did to him. He crossed him and... It almost ended up very badly for him. So he doesn't let it get to that extent, whereas Clarice just lets it all out. Mm -hmm. It's a real nice juxtaposition between the two stories that are kind of identical in their in their own right. But that's not this film's job to decide. No, I know. <laughs> Is Hannibal going to go after her? That's Hannibal's job to totally fumble, right? <laughs> well, and they try to make some peace on what happens with Hannibal and some later entries in this series continues with um, Red Dragon. What's the other one? Oh, Hannibal Rising. Terrible films. Yeah. And I think this film does it so subtly, right? Yeah. I mean, it, with little effort. Well, that's why it works is it makes me think, God, what, what is it about that? And I think those thought provoking moments make the film worthwhile. It's smart in its own way. Mm -hmm. But now you, you kind of alluded to the scene. So they, they go and they bring him dinner and this is the escape plan, right? Yeah. Goes to town on this one guy's face. Like how they shoot it is remarkable. Uh, but then poor Charles Napier, who's like a security guard in like every movie I've ever seen him in, right? Yeah. <laughs> Gets beaten with the billy club and then filleted American flag moth. I thought he looked like a moth. Yeah. Butterfly. Yeah. On the bars. Yeah. God, those cops walking into that, I'd be puking my guts out. Yeah. <laughs> like, God, it's so horrific. <laughs> Uh, but this is his plan, right? Almost very, uh, kind of like in, in the dark Knight or skyfall as you will, like he's got an interesting plan to get out and it's to get out through help from the authorities. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, or help from just kind of this ancillary kind of, uh, plan. So he cut off the one guy's face, threw him in the elevator shaft, and now he's in his cop suit. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> Wearing his face skin. Yeah. Do you notice Chris Isaac? Yep. Chris Isaac cameo in the, in this film. Well, this is the year after, or the year before. No, this is the year before Fire Walk with Me, right? Right. He was in, I think, the Twin Peaks series a little bit, wasn't he? I don't is he not in no, that? I just, he, it's just Fire Walk with Me. He's in the movie. Yeah, the first half of the movie is like him investigating something that's going to lead them to Twin Peaks. They tried with that guy for a while, right? Wicked Game and that crazy video he made, and how that guy made that video with, um, it's not Claudia Schiffer, but whatever. Uh, I forget what supermodel, the ninety supermodel, is in that with him. Um. They tried with Chris Isaac for a little while. He must have known somebody or had some dirt on somebody. <laughs> did you? It's, yeah, have some dirt. That That's how Hollywood works. Elena Christensen, that's her name. Uh, did you notice a cameo from Roger Corman as like a CIA director or something? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's like he's like the uh, one that like gives them the info, information uh, uh, about about something. Him and Crawford are having a conversation. I was like, Roger Corman. <laughs> there, there you go. Really? But the way he escapes and then like they find the body in the elevator shaft and 
to me, the, the intellectual superiority of Lecter, like when they put the oxygen on him and then he just starts like flailing on the gurney. Yeah. He knows he needs to make, it's a show, right? You gotta make it look right. Oh God. And then he removes the face and it's over at that point, right? Mm-hmm. It's everyone's, he's out. He's getting away. He's, once he's got behind, out of the bars, I don't know how you can stop Lecter. He just has a way, uh, just a way, way out. But the film's not over yet. Lecter's story might be essentially over, but we still got to catch Bill. And so it leads us into this kind of whole rigmarole. She goes through the notes that she gave him of go look for, uh, go to this town and hang on. I want to get, I want to get this name right. Uh, uh, Fred uh, Bimmel, Fred Frederica Bimmel. So. She's like, I think he knew her first victim. Why don't you go to where they worked? And then you kind of find out he was a tailor. They were tailors. And uh, she investigates the house. And sorry for your loss. But as she's investigating the room, she finds this dress. And the the patterns on the dress are similar to the the corpse victim, right? Right. He's making a skin suit, Crawford. (laughs) That's brutal. But then uh, what's about to happen is even more remarkable. So uh, Crawford and the FBI almost kind of saying you did good Clarice, but not good enough. Cause we kind of did the job for you. We're on the way to get him. Now we were able to get an address and a name, James gum, and he's in Illinois. We're going to go arrest him. And then the film does something really cool here. So it's like yeah. outskirts of Chicago, Illinois. They got this flower delivery guy. He's going to go ring the doorbell and the SWAT's going to go in and just get him. Right. And then Clarice is going to, <clears throat> Uh, the, 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 this, this house, this, this woman's house. Uh, and you know, it's kind of shot the, the similar and they're breaking in. And then when she answers the door, it's there's James gum and they're at the wrong house. Uh, and a considerable distance away. Right. I mm-hmm. think it's they're They're in two different States. What a cool moment. Right. Yeah. It, this is the Hitchcock thing. Right. Yeah. So now we have an upper on Clarice knowing, man, you're in the the den with 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 the with the lion, right? Yeah. And now how's this all gonna play out? I think I think this I, I this moment is probably my favorite moment of the movie. Uh is just how's she gonna deal with that, right? And this is after his goodbye horses dance, right? What do you think of Catherine? You know, she's at least trying to use some intellect to get out of the thing. She's trying to get the dog down there and does right scoops the dog into the bucket and then gets the, the dog probably just fell into the hole mm-hmm. don't you hurt my dog precious and, oh yeah precious as he's kind of losing it and if we needed any more evidence as to why buffalo bill's kind of un, as unhinged as he is i don't know if you noticed this but i caught it this time he has like a swastika down comforter so oh, i didn't notice some that. kind of nazi paraphernalia going on in his brain too so his transition nazi Cutting up women into skin suits, like this is a messed up guy. Yeah. So yeah, this not some den you actually want to be in. No, <laughs> no. But it's the moment when she kind of realizes. Here's that number. Very good, Mister Gordon. May I use your phone, please? Sure, you can use my phone. Put your hands over your head and turn around. Spread your legs. Spread your legs. Put your hands in the back. Thumbs up. Freeze! 
And it's when the moth lands on like the twine when she's like, there's like a, this recollection to, to be in her shoes would just be like, oh, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. I'm in the house. This is the guy. And realizing I need to handle this, right? Mm-hmm. And he, Bill doesn't see her as a threat at all, right? No. Laughing at her like, you, you got me. And then just takes off. So who has superior position at this point now? Bill, right? I mean, especially in, with the lights out and his little night vision glasses on top of it. In his warehouse basement. Yeah. When they do the exterior, finally, of where his house is located, of course, that's like where a serial killer would live by the train tracks and essentially no houses around. What's underneath this house is just so disgusting and horrifying. But yeah, once those lights go out, it's like, gosh, how is she going to get out of this? And it's like Bill's curiosities get the better of him, right? Mm -hmm. Toying with her and playing with her. These games he likes to play with his victims, his cattle. Uh, and the, the night vision, I mean, that's, that's just, you know, kind of sticks out a lot as well. What do you, what do you think of this just end sequence, just from a setting perspective and just how it all plays out? Well, it's eerily reminiscent to the way we see him abduct Catherine mm-hmm. and that is kind of stalking her and then watching her with his night vision glasses on. He's putting Clarice through the same process that she went through. She's not going to need to help him put some furniture in the back of the car. He's already got her in the car essentially, which would be his lair, yeah. but there is, this conquest, and I mean to use that word for all of the connotations that go with it, yeah. this conquest of this female, probably to go in the pit with Catherine for some use as well. Yeah, uh, It's starting to look very, very reminiscent to probably what every one of his victims has gone through prior to being done in or captured. Mm. Um, and like you said, he's got the upper hand. Um, how he screws it up is kind of beyond me. It's pretty unlikely that it would go that way in in reality, but he is so dead set on not just tricking, but tricking and then controlling, capturing, and the whole conquest idea. Hubris for a sense, mm-hmm. right? It's a bit of hubris. Well, that happens with a lot of serial killers. Does it? They get a little too proud of their own work. They get and then they're like, "Let me test it a little bit." Well, that was mm-hmm. BTK. He was like contacting the police because he was mad they weren't talking about him anymore. Jesus. And then they, they coaxed him into essentially revealing his identity through uh, the location on, on a Word document is how what did him in. So this does this does happen. But I, I've never read the book. I'd be curious to see how this kind of reads, uh, uh, this finale reads. But, yeah, it's almost like through luck that she just decides to shoot in the dark and boom, blows him away. She hears him, his gun, right? Cocks the gun, yeah, right? right? Yeah. I got to recommend everyone kind of watch this in surrounds. I'd never noticed this before, but in the back left speaker, when he's in night vision mode, you can hear, uh, uh, you can hear him breathing. It mm. really gave me the heebie-jeebies. It was just, and she, she's fiddling around in the dark. You can't see anything. Uh, so she does him in and maybe you want maybe more of a battle. Well, I think this is maybe the battle of wits, right? Yeah. In the dark, in my lair. Let's see how you do and she comes out she comes out unscathed for the mo- for the for the most part and mm-hmm. Catherine gets out, we save the senator's daughter and she gra- graduates, right? I mean, for this to be, I guess whatever an FBI dissertation looks like, this is a hell of a dissertation to to to, to be in, right? Mhm. The first time you deal with actual psychos and not reading about them in text or in the classroom, but you're actually, I can't imagine how just horrified someone would be taking on a case like this. Uh, 
but yeah, we had that that moment with her graduation and Crawford still kind of giving her the eyes, right? And he came to the graduation, then takes off. But then Lecter calls her one more time, right? And yep. it's like, have the lambs stopped screaming, Clarice? And oh my God, where are you? <laughs> and again, the upper hand of Hannibal is like, I got some debts to settle or I have some things I need to take care of. And one of the best closing lines of any movie, I'm having an old friend for dinner. Mm. Goodbye. Goodbye. Like, as Chilton gets off the plane, dude, Chilton is toast. Yeah. The, 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 the final shots of the film is, where are we? Is this like Jamaica or somewhere like <clears throat> it looks somewhere. Um, Dominican Republic, some, yeah. someplace like that. Yeah. Chilton's here for vacation and looks very out of his element. He's listening to a translator and he looks very confused. And as Hannibal stalks behind him in his fedora and his terrible wig, Blonde wig, yeah, looks so in control. Like uh, Chilton's like, "Where am I? I don't understand anything. I'm here to have a good time." And and Hannibal's, "You're toast, dude. You're, you're dead already, mm-hmm. and you don't know it." It's a great closing moment, and it. it to the book that hadn't hadn't been written, you you kind of want to know a little bit more, right? What does it look like with Hannibal Lecter out in the world? And I think we find ourselves pulling for Lecter to really do in Chilton because Chilton's such a sleazebag. Absolutely, bag. yeah. What a strange thing. I mean, he hits on Clarice, and we don't like that. But Hannibal Lecter eats people. So um, again, we're talking about arcs. I believe we've gone through a bit of an arc too. In a strange, sick way, we're kind of pulling for Lecter. And if there's any more proof, there's two more movies that feature him the same way. Exactly. Um, a couple things here. One of the first people approached to play Lecter was Sean Connery. That wouldn't have worked really well, would it? No. It, not, it wouldn't have been as cold and horrific as as, as Hopkins plays it. Agreed. His liver was some Chianti. <laughs> I mean, that just doesn't play well. No. Um. So this movie came out in February 1991. And then as we preface, this won the Big Five at the Academy Awards, but it wasn't until the following next year, February. So already at the beginning of February, it was like the front winner through the entire year. When has that happened? Crazy. Because usually, you know, you have Oscar season, October, November, December, where all that fair comes out. Yep. This is a film that came out way before any of that, and it was just like ready to to dominate. I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, 19, or let me see, $19 million budget, $278 million gross. Are, is there a trend here with these particular, because seven last week, this movie this week, is these movies really kind of rake in the dough and they're made for on the cheap, right? Mm-hmm. Something if they're well, well done, well written, and can horrify and terrify, but not, you know, maybe off put completely. Uh, there's an audience for that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think we've proved two weeks in a row. We'll see about next week. Uh, but what's your favorite uh, tasting note of Silence of the Lambs? It stuck with me the first time I saw it, and it's still the most shocking moment in the film for me, and that is the crucifixion moth scene of the cop on the cage in the museum. Yeah. The the way it's backlit, the flag behind him, um, man, it just speaks of wicked evil mm-hmm. and... Um, the diligence and planning and strength and uh, and all of that horrifying to look at. All of the that's above. straight horror movie fare there, mm-hmm. but that's not yeah. procedural cop drama. The way they show it too, I mean, it's like the cops looking through like 
the the glazed door and then they open it and then they, then they see it and they're like oh my god mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's brutal yeah i mentioned mine mine's the at the wrong house at jim gum's house and then like the realization as the audience when we realize what has just happened it's, yeah. it's a great moment uh what's the oh my god do we have the same moment on this one uh, it's got to be the Come in her face, right? Yeah. Oh, God, I never see anything like that. Can't, yeah. The films like they give like American Pie does it comedically. You know what I mean? Like like those those types of jokes. But right. like I've never seen it just like launched into someone's face before, other than like <laughs> pornography. You know what I mean? Right. God, I I can't believe they did that and got away with it. Me, I know. Yeah, that's my. Who's the master distiller on Silence of the Lambs? Uh, I think to corral all these pieces and deliver it the way it was, it's got to be Demi. Uh, there's tons of good performances in this, but it's not often that we get all of the accolades that were heaped on this film. Um, Big Five, as you stated. So uh, Jonathan Demi's got to be one of many potentials, but I'm going to give it to Jonathan Demi. Sure. I'm going to go Jodie Foster for this one. Yeah. Uh, for everything we kind of said, it is kind of her movie, right? I mean, it's her journey yeah. and this kind of test that she's going about and kind of what she goes through, what she has to do to accomplish that and how unsure she looks in that final scene is always what's really been interesting to me. Like, it almost like she's like, I don't even know if I can like really do this, like really being very careful in all the the caverns of Bill's uh, basement. Uh, it's a great performance. It's it's it, she's. I think it's a great character. They, they wrote her. It's an amazingly written character, but part of it's the performance, as we kind of prefaced a little bit earlier. Close, close, close. I, so Ted Levine. I mean, to creep me out as much as he does, and say the things he does, and taunt the way he does, and dance the way he does, mm-hmm. tucks it in the way he does. Mm-hmm. It's. I think it's. It gets overshadowed with the Hannibal Lecterness of it all, right? I mean. Could have gotten a best supporting actor, right? I mean, it's sort of surprising he didn't. Yeah, I don't even think. I think it got nominated for these five, and it won those five. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think the cinematography is really good in this movie. No nomination for that. I think the score is really good by Howard. The score is the same guy that did Seven. Oh, really? Yeah. So, like, there's some like kind of sweeping motifs that sound very similar to the Seven soundtrack. Mm. Uh, I think the score is really good, but yeah, I'll give it to to, to them for right now. Yeah. How are you going to rate and grade The Silence of the Lambs? Rock, gut, well, call, single barrel, and top shelf. Our one through five ratings, where are you going? Two weeks in a row, right? Top shelf. Uh, next to seven, this is the second best for me that was ever done in this genre. So um, a defining movie. Generationally, uh, Academy Award-wise, to add one more thing to this, in 1991, a female lead in a procedural cop drama was unheard of. Mm-hmm. So they took a bit of a risk there because uh, it would have been easy to do what you said, and that's bring back the golden boy one more round and mm-hmm. battle it out with Hector, with Lecter, but they didn't. They chose to stick with her. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think all the support is there, and it's also a good movie. Like, we can break it down in this. It's also just a, a really entertaining film to watch. Sure. There's some movies that are fun, but they're hard. You don't want to watch them again. Mm-hmm. That's not this movie. Yeah. Like The Revenant. Oh, yeah. I never want to watch that movie that's, again. Yeah, that's a chore. This is on. I'll watch it anytime. It's a good movie. Yeah. As challenging as some of the sequences in it are, as like some of these moments we've talked about that are like, like it's still like it pulls you in. Like there was moments I was watching last night. I was like, 
getting sucked into this thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I'm kind of in the investigation myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Two weeks in a row, top shelf. Uh, yeah, this is one of the, to, to be, and I call this a horror film. It's a thriller, psychological, serial killer, procedural film. But there's moments of horror in this thing that are the best that the genre has ever done. Mm-hmm. To get nominated and win Best Picture, I mean, it. The nom- Exorcist, Jaws, this, Sixth Sense, Get Out, Black Swan, if we want to call that movie horror, it hasn't been done often. Right. And for them to just sweep, I think that's the, the coolest part, right? Mm-hmm. That the, the, the often spurned genre that just gets neglected time and time again somehow clicked on all cylinders and was just like that year it was like yeah we're gonna do we're gonna do it i got it right that i year. think that's so cool uh yeah this is hopkins has never been better foster's never been better it's scary it's fun it's yeah it's it's one of the genres best right mm-hmm. it's right there with seven it's like they're like neck and neck, neck for and me neck. so yeah. it's really good so we'll see what next week where is next week gonna stuff gonna stack up but before that let's uh lead us out with our nightcap Kind of a catchy song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just going to be completely honest. Like, its use in the film is, like, forever cemented, but... Who is that? Did you look it up? It's uh, Q Lazarus, one-hit wonder, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, very catchy. Like, it's uh, the, 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 the the lyrics and then the, the beat that it has. It's in one of the Grand Theft Auto games, like, when you turn the radio on in your car. And when it came on, I would always just let it play out. Interesting. <laughs> Okay, so the Big Five Academy Awards. That's picture, director, actor, actress, and writing. Mm-hmm. Screenplay. It's only happened three times. This film, it happened one night, and uh, to, uh, I almost said To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, one Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, so my question to you is, what other films out there have been worthy of winning those Big Five Awards? There's a lot that I came up with, but they all have one missing element, like, Shawshank Redemption would be a great example, but you can't. There's no female in there. Yeah. So bad in this back and forth in my mind, I decided to go with one that got really close. Let me tell you what it was nominated for. I'm not going to tell you the film yet. Okay. Because it it was close. I do close with scare quotes around it. Um, Nominated for Best Cinematography. Actually won for that. Nominated and won for Best Art Direction. Uh, nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Actress in a Leading Role, okay, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, another Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Best Director, and Best Writing. It's The Hustler. What's really interesting about this is... So did it, ha- it had all the pieces then, right? It had all the pieces. George C. Scott was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role and actually turned down the nomination. Hmm. Guess he was fine with Patton. Weird, well, huh? He did that too with Patton, right? Mm-hmm. He just said, I don't want it. <laughs> Weird, huh? Didn't give a damn. Didn't. If that's the case to him. I mean, good for him. I mean, he, he, I guess him before anyone else decided and figured out the fluff of awards, right? Yeah, so Rossin was nominated for Best Picture, Newman for Best Actor, Piper Laurie for Best Actress, and then um, Gleason and Scott both for Supporting. Screenplay, Sidney Carroll and Robert Rossin. That's adapted, not original, but okay. nonetheless. So that's close. Like the pieces were all there. 
Um, unfortunately, regarding the big five, it didn't win any of them. Best art direction and best cinematography, I guess. Ugh. But um, it's 1961, black and white, feels grainy, obviously, and we're going to cover that film someday. But And yes, there's some bias on that for me, too. Sure. no, Because it's a fucking amazing movie. That's a great choice. What you uh, got? So it didn't win anything. No, it won it won uh, best cinematography and best art direction. Okay, whatever. Best art direction. I had two choices. I'm going to go with my honorable mention first. So, uh, one for picture, one for director. Lost for actor. Didn't get one for actress. Uh, and I guess it didn't win for writing, which is kind of surprising. So that film would be The Godfather Part Two. So that would include Coppola and Puzo for writing and then Diane Keaton probably for mm-hmm, actress. Mm-hmm. She's really good in that movie, right? Yeah. That scene, the abortion scene in that movie is top of the list of all-time great film sequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert De Niro won for supporting. Uh, Lee Strasberg and uh, Michael Gazzo were also nominated for supporting. So Godfather Part Two had three of the five supporting nominations. It didn't win. And no, De Niro won. Oh, De Niro won, yeah. Playing young uh, Vito. Talia Shire was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Oh, I it did win for screenplay. Okay. So it needed two, the acting ones. The one I'm going to go with is 1967's The Graduate. Mm-hmm. So this would be pitcher, director for Mike Nichols, be screenplay and then actor Dustin Hoffman and actress Anne Bancroft. It only won for director. Mike Nichols won for director. Shocking. It could, that one could have, right? Sure. It could have, should have. Yeah. It could have swept those ones. It was just world wasn't ready, right? The world wasn't ready for the graduate. I guess not, but good choices, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, I think it's hard for movies. I mean, now what the Oscars kind of do, it's almost like something wins for director, and if they win for director, there's no chance it's winning pictures. So it's kind of really hard to sweep the way they have it set up. I'm surprised like Titanic didn't win. Not that that wouldn't have been my winner, but I'm surprised that didn't. We have that pitcher, director, actress. No, got nominated for actress. It didn't. Leo didn't even get a nomination that year, so that one was two two fifths of the way. So yeah, it's hard. Really hard. So to this film, I mean, that just kind of props it up a little bit more. And then it's horror, right? Right. Psychological thriller horror. I mean, that's even cooler. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun talking about The Silence of the Lambs uh, from 1991. Big year, 91. Terminator 2 Judgment Day was the top grossing film that year. You know what was number two? Mm -hmm. This is going to blow your mind. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Oh, man. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And this was number five. And I think Hook is at... uh, Number four, I can't remember what was number three, but mm. yeah, ninety early 90s, big year for movies. We're going to wrap up this cast next week from 2007. I'm excited to talk about this film. And, hey, we talked about this director already. Mm-hmm. It's not Mank, everyone. Mm-hmm. We're going to 2007 and Zodiac. So another Fincher flick, another serial killer flick. And this is going to be interesting than the last week's because this was based on a real thing. So nonfiction, uh, true crime, cinema, to me, the kind of strength of this film is you go in knowing they never caught the guy that did it. How are you going to deliver a compelling and complete film for me if that was never the case, right? Right. We'll see if uh, Fincher succeeds in that regard. Great cast, great screenplay. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fun to talk about. So uh, you got that coming to you next week. So until then... <laughs> Cheers to you. Cheers to you. Cheers. I got to get going. I'm going to go do a dance to a song, but it's not going to be Goodbye Horses. I'm thinking mm, Disco Inferno by the Tramps. How does that sound? All the polyester and uh, fitted (laughs) 
disco wear you're going to have to wear. I'm glad I brought my lotion. Well, you're wearing polyester right now. It's the lotion on its skin. Or yeah. It gets the hose again. Yeah, I don't want to dry out it, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. The Silence of the Lambs is property of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, Orion Pictures, and Strongheart Productions. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Dr. Lecter. Dr. Lecter.